Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Pit. I'm Michael Swaim, your kindly guide through the Vale of Tears. Sounds like a smithereen song. Deep cut. Anyway, this is your content warning. Although, as we occasionally do, this episode is a little lighter than our usual fare, and hopefully won't trigger most of you, but I'll be speaking with writer-director-comedian Andy Bush about his struggles with the Hollywood system and eventual decision to give up and leave the Hollywood system. (laughs) Before we get to the interview proper, which is about 35 minutes in, if you feel like skipping the intro, I've decided to share with you a new short story. I think it's appropriate to the topic of the episode because it deals with screenwriting ambition, our relationship to art, and why we create art, as well as the deterioration of language, miscommunication, and the general trend of things falling apart. So, I hope you enjoy the story, or if not, I'm sure you'll enjoy my conversation with Andy Bush. But first this. Dear Jane, Hyphen. Falling out between Jerry and Sasha could happen anywhere, not just on Campus Green. Brainstorm alternate settings. Something meaningful, not just a twist. Hyphen. In general, look for settings or action that illuminate relationship. See the screenplay as a medium that does this well. Hyphen. Carrie equals too sarcastic? Want to be likable but must stay true to character? Also still needs to incite Jerry's big move. Hyphen. Nature as a source of personal strength. Rivers, woods, mountains. What do they mean? To whom? How to incorporate? Hyphen. Switch lunch scene with park scene. Hyphen. Structure equals parallel narratives? Flashback? Main focus is love story. June 12th. Dear Jane, I've never kept a journal before. Or maybe these are letters. Anyway, they let me keep my notebook. Who are they? And it seems like I've got a lot of free time on my hands. I miss you. They haven't hurt me, so I'm hoping that they're treating you well too. I don't know how long they've been on Earth or what they want with us. I haven't even seen any of them again since I was captured. I was coming down from the peak of Mount Taurus when they found me. It really was beautiful, Jane. The peak was all gray stones and scrub. You could see the Hudson headlands and green trees like broccoli heads crawling up the mountainside across the water. I was smothered in clouds. I felt so inspired. I was scribbling notes for the script like crazy. You would have loved the silence, the look of the river below like a slow-moving snake. It was a hell of a climb in the humidity, but when it was all over, I wanted you there with me more than anything. I wish I could have teleported you up there just for a moment. You would have popped out of existence, leaving some rich gallery patron utterly lost, waiting for the end of one of your rehearsed anecdotes, and appeared up there on the mountain, still splattered in paint and wearing canvas overalls. I should have taken my camera, didn't think of it. I'm sorry I missed your opening, sweetheart. I should have been there. I did what so many people lament and assumed there would be more chances in the future. I'm sorry we fought. It didn't mean anything. I hope you know that. I was just upset about the rejection letter. Maybe even jealous, let's be honest. Here you are opening another big show filled with paintings that make no sense to me. 
and I can't get anyone to even read my stuff. I shouldn't have taken that out on you, though, and I feel so stupid about it. Your paintings are beautiful, Jane. They aren't gimmicky or vacant or any of those things I shouldn't have said. They took me when I was about a quarter mile down from the peak, beneath the clouds and the timberline. What's funny is, I had considered going off trail, but decided against it. Did they find me because of that? Maybe they would have found me either way, I don't know. They look like underwater light, don't they? I got a good look at one, how to tell how many, really, when they took me, and it made me remember the way I used to float face up at the bottom of my uncle's pool and stare at the sun refracted through the ripples on the surface. They move like that, too, but they have more colors. Purples, gold, green, almost aurora borealis. And changing, as if the frequency of their light is hooked to a radio dial that someone's constantly turning. Maybe that's just the visible spectrum parts of them. I don't even know why I call them them, like sentient creatures, except that they seem to be consciously controlling things. Maybe this is a universal phenomenon, or a religious thing, or an acid flashback. Maybe I'm dead. I don't feel dead. I was out, though, cold. This thing, this angel of light thing, drifted down through the thick tree branches and just fell through the wood and leaves like rain through a sieve, hovered there in the middle of the trail, and I felt this electricity in the air. Maybe you felt it, like when you know you're going to get a static shock the next time you touch metal. And I stopped, and I don't know why, but I reached out to it. Like maybe it was a trick of the light, a mobile rainbow or something, and it sent a tendril of light out at me, snapped out, and it knocked me out instantly. No pain or dreams, just crumpled to the ground. Except I don't even remember crumpling, I just assume. That's how fast it was, like my brain just turned off like a light. But I don't feel dead. They brought me back to the city. I don't know exactly where. I'm in a hotel room, but all the furniture's been taken out, so I'm not sure about much of anything. Just an empty box with an imprint on the carpet where the bed and dresser and nightstands used to be, and an empty bathroom without toilet paper or soap or shampoo or anything, and an empty closet. They even took the coat hangers, which must have been tough because it looks like they were the kind that are attached to the rod. The front door is a big metal fire door with the knob missing and it's rigged shut from the outside somehow. I've rammed into it a dozen times and all I've got to show for it is a bruise on my left shoulder. I'm a little worried about the bathroom situation, but I haven't had to go yet. The water runs. The lights work. The wallpaper is gray with little pastel flowers that you wouldn't even notice unless you had nothing else to look at. At least they left me my notebook. When I woke up, my backpack and walking stick were gone, but my notebook and pens were still in my vest pocket, in the zippered one. You always told me I was crazy for carrying around so many pens. Maybe somehow I knew something like this would happen. Pockets tough to find, so I'm not sure if they missed it or just don't care. I can't believe it's that they missed it, after all the powers they seem to have. They've taken over the city, after all, or at least all of it that I can see from my window. The hotel faces an office building with mirrored walls, so I can make out a good portion of the street. Everything's deserted. It's eerie. There are no cars, no people, not even rats or insects or pigeons, as far as I can tell. The only signs of life I see are the distorted reflections of other people in the same building as me passing by their windows. I can't figure out why I'm the only one who looks. 
Everyone else is just a shadow passing by as if by accident, en route to other business. I thought I heard someone moving around in the room above mine, and I yelled and jumped and hit the ceiling like a madman for about 15 minutes, but there was no response, and eventually the sound faded. So is that it? World domination, complete and instant? Maybe there are government troops with light guns somewhere leading a ragtag team of survivors in resistance, but for some reason I find that hard to envision. I wonder if they're going to feed me. I miss you. I'll write again tonight. June 12th. Dear Jane, The room I'm in is about 20 feet by 30 feet, not counting the closet or the bathroom. The bathroom area is about 6 feet by 8 feet. The closet is 6 by 3. The window on the far wall is big, about 6 feet by 10 feet. Outside, in the shadowed street, I watch the workers going to and fro. They started in the afternoon, after the sun had set behind my building. They all have the same stupid, vacuous expression on their faces. It's hard to avoid an ant comparison, especially once I saw what they were doing. Dragging anything and everything mechanical back down the street towards... Pieces of cars, mailboxes, anything metal, it seems. Five or six of them, or as many as it takes, lumber over to it, yank it out of the ground, and go back around the corner of the block. Where the hell are they taking them? What for? I recognize the same people again and again. It's hard to see them from this high up, but there was a woman in a bright red cocktail dress, and she must have come back for pieces of this car's engine a dozen times. She just picked out whatever she could carry, hoses, clamps, I don't know cars, just small bits, and she'd walk around the corner and come back in 15 minutes and take some more, always wearing that ridiculous dress. They must have captured her when she was at a party. Makes the whole thing seem even more like a dream. There's about 20 of them down there at any one time, all moving at the same agonizingly steady pace. Zombie movies come to mind, but they don't keep their arms up and they don't moan, or at least I can't hear them if they do. The window's open now, so I think I would hear them. I yelled to them for a long time when I first saw them, but it's no use. They're workers, with a capital W. They don't even look up. I broke the window. It was rigged, so I couldn't open it. There wasn't anything to break it with, so I had to use my arms. That was a bitch. It looks so easy in movies, but of course it's not. It took me about ten minutes of pounding, and by the time it happened, I was so shocked I damn near fell through it. Cut my arms up pretty badly, and I don't have much to wrap them with other than thin strips of my shirt, but I'm happy to have a breeze and some sound. The silence in the room was starting to get a little too much like my mental image of purgatory. Why so many afterlife references? I guess part of me is still hoping this is going to turn out to be a dream. I'm waiting for the moment when the movie ends and the lights come up, and I turn to you and ask you if you liked it. And we shuffle out of the theater and find our car and go for coffee and sit and talk about how contrived it all was. Every time I see a new worker below, I pray that I won't recognize your face. I don't want to think of you like them. I can't imagine you wandering the city looking for scrap metal. I don't know what I'd do if I saw you probably jump out the window. I'm sorry, Jane. I won't do anything stupid. They left me alone, at least for this long, so there's no reason to assume anything yet. I'm going to do something, though, and soon. I'm getting too hungry to keep waiting around. I've been thinking about ways to get out, and if I do, I'm going to find you. I promise. I'm going to find you, and we'll leave the city. 
whether you're lobotomized or brainwashed or whatever. I don't care. I've been thinking about when I got my first story published in that school journal. Remember that? I carried my copy around in my backpack all day, and after calculus we were cutting through the woods to go to the dining hall, and you asked me what I looked so damn happy about. I ended up reading it to you while you leaned against a poplar tree. I remember the way you looked against the mottled trunk, so slow and warm, like a black cat sleeping in sunlight. You never seemed to move or even blink. You just stared through me and smiled as I read. If you noticed my voice shaking, you didn't mention it. Instead, I could see something incredible glowing in your eyes as you listened. I realized that you weren't looking at me, you were looking into the story. You were watching everything I read play out in front of you, that incredible imagination of yours. I could see my story in your eyes more vividly than I'd ever seen it, even while I was writing it. What's wrong with them, anyway? Why do this to us? Without any warning or contact? I wonder if they even know how much they're hurting. It all seems so casual. You know what I just realized? The top of the toilet, the heavy ceramic cap at the top. It's unsecured. I could have broken the window with that. June 13th. Dear Jane, I am the proud owner of two rooms. I used the top of the toilet to break through the drywall into the next room. The walls are very cheap here, it seems. The toilet cap broke halfway through, but I unscrewed a loose pipe from the back of the toilet to finish the job. Flooded the bathroom, but now I've got two, so who cares? There's about a five-foot diameter hole in the wall now, and toilet water continuously falls out of the hole in the window. The best part? My new room is completely furnished. There was even a little fridge with minibar stuff in it. Nuts, little bottles of alcohol, calories at least, I was starving. This all happened in the afternoon, after I decided to escape. I decided to escape because of what happened last night, which I guess I should tell you about first. They came again, I'm sure of it. The big they, they whom are in control. I was asleep, but I felt them in my head, in my dreams. I'm not sure what happened, what state I was in, but I was aware. It wasn't sleep, but perhaps not waking. I couldn't see anything except the inside of my own head, and they were in there, in all their multicolored splendor. They told me things, not with words, but they twanged and plucked my neurons like meaty guitar strings and showed me what they meant. It was as if I could see them waft through the cavity of my head, find an image, or emotion, or desire, or dream, and set it off. It exploded, and that became my only thought. It filled everything. If one of them accessed the taste of blueberry pancakes, it's like the whole world was made of them and my mouth was stuffed full. But they don't want blueberry pancakes. I'm still not sure what they want. They don't seem benevolent or cruel or forceful or forgiving. They just seem empty. Like something so different there's simply no way for us to understand or communicate. They are alien. An absence, a gap in the spectrum of what we can know or experience. All night, they sent me feelings and pictures. All night, they exploded my thoughts. When I woke up, the big smoke shapes their fireworks left behind were still clouding my mind, drifting out of sight as my own senses puffed at them like the constant breeze from the open window. I was groggy and confused. It took a long time to really wake up. That was last night, and this morning, a mystery. Today, more. I tried to escape like they do from prison, 
by tying bed sheets together and making a rope to climb down. I'm on the sixth floor, but my new room had a whole stack of linens in the closet, and in about an hour I had a strong rope that I could hang out the window and which reached within ten feet of the ground. I tied the rope's end to the bed and tossed it out the hole. I took a few minutes to try and prepare, calming myself, getting ready. I won't say I wasn't frightened. It's quite a climb when you're looking straight down at a sheer drop. But just when I was ready, I got this overwhelming feeling of despair. Whenever I even thought about climbing out, I'd get the feeling that I shouldn't do it. It was something more than fear. I felt that it would be wrong. I felt ashamed, more than I've ever felt in my life. I felt like if I climbed out the window, I'd be betraying everything. You, Lily, Mom, Dad, that everyone would know what a bad person I was for doing something so terrible. My hands were shaking and my stomach cramping up. I started to cry, Jane, thinking about all the people that would hate me if I climbed out that window. I'm sure it was them. Something they're doing. Somehow they're still in my head, giving me feelings and images. Feeding me people's faces, frowning, twisted in disappointment and hatred. I remember all the times you ever hurt me with a glance, or a word, or a silence, and I relive them all whenever I think of trying to escape. It has to be them, and I know it, but I can't do anything about it. I'm sitting here writing and writing, and I should be gone from here, but I can't. Even now, I feel like if I think about the window anymore, I'm going to be sick. Jane, I've been trying all day. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. If I tried to climb down this way, sobbing, shaking, water falling around me, I'd slip. It's like something physical racking my body, like a dog's shock collar. I feel so helpless. I keep thinking of when we first moved to the city and everyone seemed so strange and awful. Everywhere I looked, it was this wave of people who were too busy, too cold, too downcast to care about me. Our shitty studio apartment with the giant roaches. The nights being woken up by gunfire, times we couldn't afford dinner. I thought this place would swallow us whole, Jane, but it didn't. I keep thinking about that, how drastically things can change. I need you, Jane. Please be with me if you can. I promise I'll find you. I'll save you if you'll just be with me now. I don't feel like writing anymore. I feel sick. I tried to work on the script some, but couldn't see the point. They say that a real writer will write even if there's no chance of anyone ever reading their work. I'm going to try and sleep. June 14th. Dear Jane, they want me. They want me to be like the other ones below. They want me to work for them. That's what they want. More dreams last night. More thoughts. Memories, food, sex, feelings, colors. Exploded and then gone. Once they explode, they're hard to say in words. I tried to describe blueberry pancakes. That's all I came up with. Blueberry pancakes. Pancakes with blueberries. Sweet? Round? It's hard to say now. Hard to connect these ideas. I had to read what I wrote yesterday. I couldn't even read all of it. Some of it was fuzzy. Some words I had to read over and over. I can see them. I can taste them like I'm eating them. They're the whole world, but only when they want them to be. I can't describe anything well otherwise. It's like a drawer is labeled pancakes, but there's nothing there now. I lost the key. I think that's how they do it to us. 
the ants. I think they can't hear me because they can't hear the words. All their thoughts are exploded. I yelled at them and I threw pillows down there and an ashtray. The ashtray was metal and one of them took it and left with it. Bastard. I hate them, Jane. I don't want to be one. I don't want you to be. Are you? In the morning there was food here. Old bread, cheese, brown, mushy bananas. But the furniture was gone from the other room. And the sheets, the rope. Now nothing's left. Not even toilet or sink. I pee out the window. I use wallpaper for toilet paper. But they left my notebook, because I keep it in a vent for now. They didn't look there, I think. When I try to think of some things now, I get the sadness again. I get ashamed. I see horrible faces. I see you, Jane. So disappointed. When I'm asleep, they steal my words. They steal everything but the pictures that are too big to see. The feelings are so big I can't feel anything else. The wants are so strong not fulfilling them is like torture. The tastes and smells are so coarse and brutal, smashed into my head. They fill everything, make me blind. I can fight it in the day, but at night when they come, the light people, they explode my mind. There is a little pile of metal things in the middle of the room, Jane. All the things I could find in the room. Screws from the light switch cover, the vent cover, the light fixture. I pulled them all out and piled them in the middle of the room because they made me want to do that. I didn't want to do it, but they wanted me to, and then I wanted to, and to not do it was like torture. It was like hell. So I did it, and now the pile is there. I am thinking of what to do. I will try to do something. I don't want to give them any more of me. June 14th. Dear Jane. Things to remember. 1. Jane. Soft brown skin. Yellow eyes. Like a cat. Loves me. 2. Jane and Lily. Christmas dinner in Georgia. When Robert called me a bum and Jane got mad and Lily laughed. That night in guest room, making love for first time. 3. Move to New York. Jane makes beautiful paintings, big, abstract, shapes and colors. She says they are her secrets. Four, night Jane reads first draft of script, just smiles and smiles. Five, night I propose with bad painting of a ring. Jane laughs. Six, Jane's first New York show, the bad review, crying on my shoulder in the park, trying to feel sad because she is sad, but feeling so happy just to be with her, to be the one she cries with. 7. I need to read this journal every day. I need to try hard to remember the words in it. 8. I am putting an alphabet at the end of this book. I need to study it each day. 9. I need to remember as much as I can. 10. I need to find Jane. Getting a headache. Have to stop. What I am going to do. Not sleep tonight. Stay awake. Not going to dream again. Going to write more in the morning. June 15. Dear Jane, I killed someone. This morning, two of the workers came here. I heard them at the door and then they busted in. Two big men wearing normal clothes, looking normal except for those empty faces, those heads full of exploded thoughts. The bigger one, fat, strong, greasy, stinking, pushed me into a corner, held me against the wall. I kicked, but he didn't feel it. Held me against the wall like a press. He breathed heavy and his breath stank. I yelled at him, talk to me, talk to me, you have to help me. He had his mouth a little open and his eyes stared and he held me there. 
The other one had a black machine. It was round and black, had cords hanging down. The big one was holding me so the other one could put the machine in my room. I don't know what it is. I thought it could be a bomb, could be a torture device. I don't know. So I struggled and yelled because I didn't want it there. I didn't want it in here. I tried to talk to them. They move so slow. That's the worst. How slow he took his time and set the machine up and moved parts around and bolted it to the floor and checked it here and there. So slow while I kept kicking at the big man who just doesn't notice, who just stares while his shins start bleeding from where I keep kicking him. But he found my notebook, Jane. When I was struggling, he wasn't just staring, because he saw it in my jacket pocket, my notebook, my pens. He came to life like they were inside him, like they told him what to want, and he wanted it. He started reaching for the notebook, slow, and my arm was free, so I hit him in the face, in the left eye. I felt his cheekbone and my knuckles hurt badly. He didn't stop reaching. I knew he was going to take the notebook, Jane, and I got scared. I need to read it, to keep writing, to keep my mind. I can't be like them, mindless, staring, mouth open, dead, dead, dead. I hit him again in the face, and he moved a little. But this time the sadness came, and I felt terrible, that I was hurting this poor man, that I would be blamed forever and ever for hurting him. And I almost stopped, but I kept going because I was so scared of losing the notebook, Jane. I kept hitting him until finally he stopped pressing me against the wall and I could move again. The other one was finished now with the machine. He was leaving, opening the door. He didn't care about the big one, he was just doing his work and he was leaving. I tried to run for the door, and the big one pulled me back by the shirt and threw me down. I slammed onto the ground, and the door shut, so again the room was sealed, but the big one stayed and bent down with his fat fingers to tear at my shirt for the notebook. I yelled. I hit him in the face with both fists, and his nose bled, dripping down on me, and he didn't notice and kept grabbing. I rolled and pushed and bit to get out from under him. I got out. I ran to the side. He followed me. Not running, just walking, so fucking slow and casual like a Sunday stroll with his shins and his face bleeding and his arm bleeding where I had bit him. I strangled him to death. I used my jacket. I got behind him with my jacket and I pulled it tight, tight around his neck. He didn't struggle much. He pulled at the jacket with his hands, but I held it there. He started making choking noises. I felt so sad, Jane. They made me feel so sad. I felt my little sister's wet hair under my hands as I forced her under water. Heard my father begging for me to stop while I hit him again and again with a pipe. I felt like I was murdering my whole family. Like I was the biggest killer, killing everyone I loved one at a time. I kept crying and shouting and crying, but I pulled the jacket tighter because I knew I needed the notebook no matter what. I knew it was all a trick, even when I saw you, Jane, even when I saw that it was you I was choking. I kept holding the jacket and I felt your lightness and I heard your last breath while I killed you. I choked you, Jane, until you stopped pulling at the jacket and I let your body slowly down to the ground and now you're here and they won't let me see the man again. The bigger man. Even though I know that's who I really killed. No matter what, when I look at the body... They make me see you. It just looks like you are just lying dead there, just in the room there. It's such a mean trick, Jane. They're bastards to put this machine here, this black ball fastened to the floor that never moves and never does anything. I think it's just to torture me. 
so I know that at any second it could blow up and kill me and I can't do anything. They torture us. Why? So casual. So cold. They leave your image in my mind. They plaster it over the dead body in the corner. Make your face so big in my head that I can't see anyone else. Blueberries. All I think is how much time we could have had. You always wanted to go out, but I had papers to grade. I had students who needed me. At night I had to work on my writing, rewrite, get something published. I had to prove that I was good too, that I could be a good artist like you and your paintings. So fucking stupid. Could have been holding you in my arms all that time. How stupid can I be, Jane? Could have been making love or talking or holding hands. Could have seen a movie. Could have done anything but sit and be jealous and grade fucking papers. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jane. Please don't be dead. Please don't die anymore. I'm going to find you somehow. Please don't look dead and empty when I find you. Please be Jane. June, dear Jane, I don't know what day it is. I am sleeping for a long time. It is the machine. It hurts more. It is them, more of them, when I sleep everywhere. The machine makes them stronger in my dreams. They are bright orange and purple and red in my dreams. They want me to give up my notebook, but I won't. When I don't, they make me hurt. They make me burn. They burn my thoughts and try to make me forget. They make my memories so hot inside my head, I can't hold on to them anymore. But I touch them anyway. I hold them and my hands blister and char in my dreams. I need to remember. I need to hold on to the words. They said in my dreams that they want me to leave the notebook, leave it behind. I know because the notebook is the hottest thing. It burns to even think about the notebook. It burns to write. It burns worse to read. It makes my teeth grind, my eyes water. I throw up. I claw myself. But I read, Jane, to remember. I read even though I cannot read much and a lot is nothing, just scribbles. I will never not write, Jane. I will never not read. That is the answer. They can make it hot, but they can never force me. I can keep reading, and I will always remember some. I will keep writing. I read the alphabet. I write letters. I will write each day. They will have to kill me, Jane. I will not be their aunt. They are down below. I watch them. They are done with the metal. Now they flow. They march. They move all in one direction. Thousands of the workers going one way. I do not know why. I don't care. I will find you. Things to remember. One, find Jane. Two, colors. Red, purple, orange, blue, yellow, pink, green. Three, shapes. Square, circle, triangle. Four, animals. Cat, dog, mouse, cow, crow, house, child, lamb, sheep, wool. Five, love, good feeling. Six, Lily, mom, dad. Seven, foods, oranges, blueberry pancakes. Eight, read, write, alphabet, remember. Dear Jane, I finding you, but they taking I away. In dark now, many ants. Yesterday morning, ants come opening door, many, many. Millions ants in hallway. They staring, they letting I out of room. Notebook burning, but I holding it tight. They not trying to taking it, they leading I down to street. Million marching, all marchings, I marching with them. 
They leading us for long time, we marching through city. More ants join marching, all marching, we go. I seeing your paintings. Jane, I seeing your paintings, I seeing gallery. I seeing your paintings through big window. I remembering you being there, you being at show. I hold burning book, I running, ants following I. I running into gallery, big, white. Jane, I seeing all your paintings. I seeing the black one with pink circles. I seeing the small blue ones, the many small blue ones together. I seeing the rope, I seeing the tree. I seeing the man with the yellow ears. I seeing the gray shapes and the red dots. I seeing all the beautiful paintings, Jane. I seeing all the paintings at your show, at your gallery. I going to opening, I seeing them. I seeing your secrets. I seeing you whispering to me, Jane. I seeing all your secrets in the paintings. I never seeing before so beautiful, so very good, Jane. I loving, I remembering them all. No words, just pictures, I remembering. But I know seeing Jane. I seeing ants. I seeing millions ants. I holding notebook. I burning. Ants grabbing me. I fighting and hitting and slashing, crashing. I fighting Jane, but they millions ants. They many, many. We march again. Now. Dark. Big room. Big machine. Looking like machine in hotel. Bigger. Much bigger. Many ants waiting. Not letting I leaving. Looking for you here, hours, but not finding. Trying to run from crowd, not allowed. Ants keep coming in, feeling crushed. So many millions, machine humming now. Low sounds, lights going off. Ants silent, moving together, big herd crushing. Hard to writing. Rainbow people here, walking in the air, walking above, many, don't know what. Scared, missing you, Jane. Seeing your paintings, Jane, so beautiful. Machine sounding louder, strange feeling, electricity, something happening, going to stopping, writing again to telling you, Jane, I writing again soon, I promising, no matter what happening, I writing again soon, I loving you. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W. Now I'm recording. Wonderful. We did it. As am I. We're good. We're entwined digitally. Um, speaking of streams, we just showed at our last on our last YouTube stream we showed everyone Nick J's. So what? I think that features you five or six times. That's that's one of my favorite sketches, man. Excellent material. Thank you. That was a really that was a fun one. That again, most of these sketches that that ended up on our short-lived uh, sketch show. Our live performances, we used to do live performance at... Uh... All right, so for the listener, in case I use scraps of this, Nick J's is a sketch involving uh, yourself from the future running into yourself over and over until there's four or five of you. How did you do that live? Is that How is that possible? We just had other... It's funny because like in the, in the live version, we just had other people just play me. So... Oh, come in and say, I'm you from the future. Okay. Yeah, and honestly, we were like, how are we going to do this? I mean, are we just going to have other people dress up like that? And then <laughs> through the magic of editing, um, we, yeah, we, 
we had that. I didn't I didn't uh, direct that one, thankfully. Sure. Um, but it finally occurred to you guys to use the simplest special effect in film, the very first effect ever done in the history of film, putting two people in one it frame. Was, I'll be honest, <laughs> though, it was actually more difficult than we thought it would be once we were like, oh, yeah, we'll just do split screen. But because director had to put down ta- like five different pieces of tape on the monitor so we weren't overlapping anything and took a long time <laughs> but uh, but I think it worked out well oh absolutely Nick Jay's phenomenal sketch well uh, for people who are completely lacking context let me do a little spiel here I'm very very pleased to welcome Mr. Andrew Bush to Tales from the Pit thank you for being here Andy and thanks so much for your patience uh, we had to reschedule thank you for having me it's nice to be here but uh, yeah I have very much been looking forward to this uh, because Andy is one of the dri- was one of the driving forces of a sketch troupe that was a favorite of Abe's and mine when we were coming up and then we've we've admired from afar as you guys have done what you do and uh, I'm gonna be vague about it because I kind of want you to fill it in because we sort of got to chatting and decided to do an episode about... <laughs> well, I guess I, sh- I should start with My Gorgeous Son. Because among, among the dozens of uh, comedic adventures that you've embarked upon, a recent project is this podcast that you do with Mark Little called My Gorgeous Son that Abe and I are both obsessed with. Uh, look forward to, with bated breath every week, to hear Mark Little pretend to be a wildly abusive father and just shit on you in humorous fashion. And I would argue that the the premise of that show in a nutshell uh, is, well, besides all the Babadook hats and hooves and random crazy shit, um, the, sen- the premise began back at the beginning as uh, you sort of returning home to Canada after quote-unquote failing at Hollywood, like trying and failing and now you're back get rid of the quote oh okay great great (laughs) so that's what we're talking about because i'm uh an intensely angry depressed person who currently is trying to make it in hollywood and still lives here and every day i ask myself what the fuck am i doing i hate this i hate it here i hate everyone i hate most of the people in the industry uh and i just love the work so much that i keep nursing this dream of like doing it getting there getting through the wall and doing it and uh you know i would say both of us have had hell you have have had what more than one show on the cbc i believe at this point i've had uh i've 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 starred in two shows on cbc two shows on canadian television three yeah like shows that i sort of were, were that i was directly involved in creating i had two shows there you go well so for me that's still huge because it was a show broadcast over the airwaves to televisions like that's still <laughs> yeah that's a cool plateau i haven't reached and yet you still your stick on gorgeous sun is that you're depressed and i think that that probably comes somewhat from a true place and that you're self-loathing and a failure and I just want to hear, I want to hear the real version. I want to hear the real self-loathing and failures. I, I will do it in three phases. The first phase, I think, is what, what, are, what were your creative dreams and beginnings? Like, how'd you get, uh, how'd you fall in love with this business we call show? And why'd you come to L.A.? And what was your goal when you got there? Fresh off the bus, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Uh, completely goalless. Um, I, it's, I don't know. It's funny because I haven't... It's hard. It's. I look back and I'm like, did I have goals really? I, I, I sort of got into 
I guess, Canadian show business fairly early on, and I had a pretty easy time of it. At first, I, I was on a, I got on a kid show, um, that, a consumer advocacy kid show, which never would exist in America because it had no commercials and it taught kids about the evils of capitalism. Very communist, but it was on very edgy. Yeah, edgy. It was well. It was on the CBC, and it was called Street Sense, and it was super fun. And I, I, re I mean, I did take it for granted. I was like seventeen, and I, I did some stand up at sixteen that I, man, I don't know. You know that the ignorance of youth. I just thought yelling really loud and flailing and doing a vague Jim Carrey impression meant comedy, and um, and it did well. And then I got a show. I, it. I was going to say, it's not that it doesn't. I mean, Dane Cook sold out arena after arena, man. Yelling loud is a thing, for sure. Will Ferrell telling you to get off the shed, you know. Yeah. He has other levels, but the yelling loud level is a legitimate comedic level, I would say. Oh, I got that on lock. Um, yeah, you started, you know, you started in the shallow end before you got the sophisticated stuff going. Can you remember any bits from your very first stand-up? Routine? Uh, there was uh, some cane twirling. Really? <laughs> okay. Like, I memorized all of Jim Carrey's cane twirls from Batman Forever, and then I came out twirling a cane. No reason. No, no wow. premise. And it was for my high school. And I, I was lucky because there were only two people who did stand-up. It was a talent contest. And the gentleman mm -hmm. before me, very nice, nice guy, um, but... He bombed so terribly. <laughs> he, by comparison, anything. And I just had confidence. I don't know what it was, but I just had it. I just oozed it. I mean, I had bits about me packing groceries. And honestly, all of them were just, yeah. this sucks. Am I right? Like, just that. <laughs> yeah, Conan gets a lot of laughs off. That joke didn't go over well. Oh, well. Um, yeah, but that's interesting. So you talk about oozing confidence is your the persona, the comedic persona that you sometimes inhabit is I would call does not I would say does not ooze confidence. Andy Bush, the comedic persona does not ooze confidence. How connected are you in real life to Andy Bush from My Gorgeous Son, I guess, is what I'm getting at, because uh, I would not describe you as oozing confidence. And I'm wondering if in real life. Which is closer to the truth? Do you lose confidence or has that gone from you? Was that a teenage Andy thing? Yeah, I think so. I think very early on I felt this uh, imposter syndrome happen. And I felt like I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm on TV. Why am I on TV? I shouldn't be here. Um, and, you know, I did I did Street Sense for four years and I left. And I, I eventually kind of like hit this wall where I was like, I really want to like, I don't think comedy is just yelling. I think there's more to it. <laughs> I think there's like premise. I love sure. I, I want to learn how to do that. Once you start to kind of like really hit it and, and sit down and be like, okay, what, what works and what doesn't this self-loathing just kind of like seeped in <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty tough for, for a while. And I, I actually got into, I went to Toronto and got my ass kicked and, uh, started a sketch troupe with one of the members was Thomas Middleditch from, uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is very odd. Fantastic guy. And another guy named David Deneen Porter and James Hartnett. They're incredible comedians. I don't know. And then, you know, I just kind of, I went from there and then went, did Picnic Face after that. And uh, and now, I don't know if that's a persona, man. <laughs> I think that's just is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Okay, so that leads to my next question is, well, also as an aside, so I guess, so you really came in through the comedy angle, right? Like comedy is what first appealed to you or uh, Street Sense doesn't sound like it was strictly comedic, was it? Well, it was. It was kind of like, what is that? show it's like all that or something it was a little it, it was aged up and we would do our parodies would be involved like we would do a thing about like kids would ask why are chip bags half full and we would explain mm. in a funny way uh maybe through like a dawson creek parody that it's because you know there needs to be some air so the chips don't crush or or we'll talk <laughs> about like like taxes or something like that uh, and we'll do nice. it as a Buffy the Vampire Slayer sketch. Sure, sure. Musical number. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I do think there's a high correlation between being in comedy specifically versus just being a writer of any sort and self-loathing <laughs> and the imposter syndrome. And I don't know. My only working theory is that comedy, the comedic mind, you eventually train yourself to take everything apart because it's sort of the process of crafting a joke usually or often involves looking at something and going, this is why that sucks. Or looking at something and going, sure, that seems great, but here's why it's hypocritical or bullshit. Because the the undermining or the subterfuge is sort of part and parcel of being a jester in society. And I find it impossible to not look at yourself then and go, oh yeah, humans are bullshit too. Oh, I'm bullshit too. Oh wow, everything's pretty much bullshit. Well, <laughs> yeah. that in of itself is it gets pretty tired pretty quickly where you're like, oh wow, I'm I am now that, which is honestly a trope. <laughs> so you start to feel because you're always at least I am trying you're trying to avoid these tropes. And in of in trying to avoid a trope, you become one. So that's that's something that I've I've kind of like um dealt with a lot. Like I'll I'll go into this kind of meta spiral and then it'll end with me just going, well, I'm just going to, I don't know, I'm just going to play some Hearthstone. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. and I don't, I don't work on stuff. And where, where Mark, uh, I think excels, although he's similar in that, like he, he consistently um, questions what he does and, and works through things. Um, but what I, what I do like about his, how he works is he, he'll, he'll often break through that wall. He'll, he'll just, um, he'll sit through it. He'll sit in it. And he'll break through. Um, where, whereas I'll, I'll often, if I'm left to my own devices, I'll just kind of, I'll see that wall. I'll maybe like push a little bit, and I go like, "Fuck it, take a bath, something." Yeah. <laughs> like I don't know, Hearthstone's pretty easy though. I'm really good at it, so yeah. Were you a Magic the Gathering guy at all? No, no, I didn't play any of that stuff. But I just got sucked into this Hearthstone game, and it's such a great time killer. Uh, so the evolutions of. And for me, yeah, it was very similar. It was like, I knew I wanted to be a writer, and then comedy was the first thing that worked out, so here I am a comedian. So the, gro- the growth can be organic, but regardless of how you ended up there, I have to imagine that by the time you have some years behind you and some lauded projects, and you're like, I am a comedian. This is at least this phase of my life. You know, you become invested in <laughs> goals and the expansion of your brand, or where is this leading, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I did. Um, but I guess what I'm asking from your perspective is why did, why, and how did that snowball into deciding you need to move to Los Angeles? And then 
what was that experience like for you? This, I guess, is really the heart of the episode. Uh, well, I mean, that's yeah, that's a good question because, like, I don't know. I never really pictured myself going to Los Angeles. It was never a goal of mine. Um, I mean, if I had, if I could choose my career, it would be, you know, I get to live and work in my hometown and do stuff that I like puts food on a table and I can sort of like make a life for myself. Los Angeles was, it wasn't as, it wasn't horrible to be honest. It was just, um, it was a bit surreal because it wasn't really in my plans. What happened was picnic face was canceled. And then a friend of mine who was, who was sort of following, following me. And I was actually following him for quite some time, worked at funnier die. And he was like, well, dude, do you want to like come work for funnier die? I was also, uh, you know, a huge fan of, of, can I say cracked? <laughs> can I say? Oh yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've been following you as well. You know, I, I, I watched your, your, I, I think it was like you were playing a video game explaining. Enter the Gungeon video. Oh yeah. I, I was, I mean, again, it was very similar. I, I felt very, I mean, we'll, we can get into it, but I felt very similar at the time Um, with, so it was really, honestly, really nice to hear uh, from someone that I like, was following and 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 respected in that like w- what you were doing at crack to just to publicly talk about it because i didn't feel comfortable publicly i didn't feel like i had an audience to to be honest anyway but it was it was nice to hear someone be like oh yeah okay are you kidding me with those power thirsts views you didn't think there were people waiting for missives from picnic face that's that's picnic face and and this was honestly after my after i left funny or die to be honest so you know i worked there for geez two and a half years I learned a huge amount and, uh, you know, everybody there is incredibly talented, but I think in my, just my limited, with my limited perspective, I felt like I I got in at the beginning of the end or what was, or the change, you know, that the change that happened that I think maybe happened with, with cracked and college humor felt it as well. Uh, there was a, there was a sort of event that swept the sector, the very specific industry of comedy on the web outlets. And if you look right around the same time, within about a year of each other, all those places just laid huge swaths of people off. And it had to do, at least in our case, and I'm wondering if you heard anything like this over at FOD, but uh, with us, a big part of it was everyone trusting the Facebook algorithm was accurate and uh, constantly changing content to hit whatever Facebook told us to hit. And then finding out several years into that shift that Facebook was completely fabricating their numbers from nothing. Could they're just, it's absolute fraud, bald faced fraud. (laughs) Like I'd heard that Facebook was doing that. Um, I wasn't really that high up the totem pole at funny or die. I was, I was a content creator. I mean, I just got, I think I, I just got like tired and maybe I, I did get lazy after a while. I, I just, I could do a video or I couldn't, it doesn't, it didn't fa- feel like it really mattered. So in the end, when, like when I did go, it made sense. Cause like, I was like, I don't, yeah. I really did question. I started questioning things like, do, do I like this? Like, am I f- funny? Like, is this something? Does this make me even happy? <laughs> yeah, is this what I want to do? And 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 you're and it's a weird thing because you're you know you're working in a place where I mean you're not getting paid a lot of money, but again that that shouldn't be the the issue, even though 
it is. You, you do want to like make something to live. You make just enough money to lose money. You know what I mean? And well, that's what I feel like if I make enough money to live, I'm perfectly content and excess money actually starts to make me feel weird and crappy about systems and myself. But L.A. is very expensive to live in. Like the amount you need just to period live is quite high. <laughs> you can, you really got to earn in this town. Oh, absolutely. I know. And, and and there is also in Los Angeles, there is this kind of like this feeling of like upward upward mobility is is the and i don't think i was that person i was someone who i got to a point where i really did just kind of like i was like what do you need me to do i'll do it well uh but uh, once it's done i go home i just sit i play hearthstone <laughs> and that's that i was imagining funny or die andy first discovering hearthstone and they like well this changes everything <laughs> <laughs> now i don't just go home and sit and stare at the wall anymore now i can play games. so that's what happened but eventually I mean, the work was just, you know, like I, I did a, I, I had done a television show and I did a feature as well and it was really great and I learned a lot, but I, it got to a point where it was rare that I was doing complicated and elaborate projects uh, for Funny mm -hmm. or Die. It was a lot of the time it was kind of like a straight to camera thing and, you know, that still takes some skill because you got to work with the actor you got to find funny bits you got to make things work but just on a technical right. level it, it gets a little bit boring <laughs> so well it's tough because you know i i didn't take the opportunity that i i think i should have perhaps at least on some level to really you know make connections and 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 work i, I worked with some some pretty good pretty good talent i didn't stay in touch and i didn't i didn't do those things that i think that's really what Funny or Die was for. And that's honestly what they They were like, look, this is an opportunity. We're giving you an opportunity here kind of thing. You still, regardless of it, you should still make that opportunity. So, it, But it gets to a point where the, you just break, where you're like, I can't just put a camera and have someone talk at the camera. I, I, I need to do something else. And it's funny you say, you know, you're, you, you don't know what you're doing and, and whatnot, because I mean, small like small beans i've I, just kind of getting into it like this network that you've kind of helped build or built yourself is so impressive to me because it's something that i think that i look back on like even mark and i look back on sometimes we're like man you know we really kind of like let picnic face go <laughs> because our ultimate goal with picnic face was to mm -hmm. get on canadian television and which you achieved i mean for the i was lucky enough to cross paths with mark at a comedy event and he ended up mailing me the dvds of the show <laughs> wow what a fucking phenomenal show i mean i've i watch it over and over i bootleg dvds of your show but uh yeah i feel bad that that stuff's not on youtube for people for you know yanks to see uh but I can see why that's so for me. And that's what's funny about this industry, too. By the way, thank you so much for the kind words. That really means a lot, um, especially considering the source. But uh, yeah, and that's that's why you start to question, uh, am I just incapable of being satisfied or happy <laughs> with whatever's going on? Am I always going to be, you know, because uh, I comparisons, the thief of joy, and it definitely is in the case of like, Oh, you got on TV. You got a TV show. In my mind, I would be like, wow, 
your life stream came true. You're done, buddy. Good job. But you're like, yeah, but I'm still, I'm 36. I need more stuff to do between now and when I die. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. You don't always think about that part if you're goal oriented, you know? You're like, all right, what what now? Well, that or, or sometimes when you actually, like, for example, last year, uh, I I got a I got a show on the air. Mark and I got a show called Cavendish, which uh, I don't think is going to get sold in the States. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? But it'd be really nice. Okay. But it got canceled. <laughs> we had a show. We had like eight episodes. Um, CBC was yeah. fantastic. To, it was the biggest thing we ever did. I mean, the, the, the budget was, for, for a Canadian show, generous. And yeah. we got to do what we want. We had creative control. And I was really fun. Uh, but then it ended. And... Mm-hmm. you get this or at least i've experienced is like you get this feeling like when i had the show i kind of had this feeling of guilt because there's a lot of like incredibly talented people out there who have great ideas and it's not happening for them um and then when it ends you get this you go through so many different reasons why it happened you ha- you concoct all of these things and then uh, of course other people are telling you this is why this is why oh there's oh like why the cancellation you mean yeah and then you just get into that spiral you guys pissed off the locals who actually live in the area where cavendish was set i thought that was pretty funny (laughs) from an outsider's perspective i'm from the east coast i'm i'm not from prince Island, but i'm from nova scotia which is like three hours away i felt like this was a like a love letter to this town but there were some people who were like that's not what we're like and when you see like it's always sunny in philadelphia i don't look at that and go oh yeah there's probably like just a lot of crack addicts and it's always like yeah everyone's like frank or rickety cricket that's what philly is like (laughs) cavendish had surreal elements too so i was like right there's also not like a feral pig man that takes people in the night in prince edward island i know that i don't need to be explained that that's not accurate in real life uh my favorite example that's always been uh raising arizona at the time raising arizona came out a lot of arizonans made a big stink about like why do they have southern accents why do they no one in arizona's like this and it's like yeah it's like a surreal cartoonish arizona that we made up go fuck yourself so yeah i will i do want to confirm for you first of all in i can't believe empathy can can be a, a block sometimes and to imagine that you're sitting there feeling bad for people who didn't get the opportunity to have eight episodes of a canceled show uh you have deep wells of empathy within you sir to spare it for for them but i will also say as someone who has friends who have shows who doesn't have a show uh it's true your friends are both super happy for you and questioning everything about why they can't get a show you know it does both so like I've, yeah and I'm, i've been on both sides of that equation right like i've seen exactly i you know and and it's an odd thing too because i will say g- going from having my own show with picnic face to going to work at funny or die was also a, re- a weird experience because i had again i was like i'm amongst seven other people um i was like a showrunner i was directing half of the episodes i was sitting in the mm-hmm. edit suite along with 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 mark editing it so i had a huge amount of like work to do but it was there was a lot of like, yeah. creative control and then when you get to funny or die 
it's a different thing. Sure, I had sort of creative control, but it wasn't my thing. It was there, there were lots of other people working on it. It feels like really weird. And then again, it just happened with Cavendish, where I was I had all of these all of these uh, questions to answer, and I had all of these things that I mean, people would just come up and give me. You know, I had so much. I don't want to say power because that sounds weird, but I just had so much creative control. I guess is what I'm saying. And now I'm like, is my next job going to be like, I don't know. Am I, I don't know. what. Yeah. Are you between jobs right now? (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So running small beans is a delight specifically because of the level of creative control, which is essentially absolute, but the trade off of it being absolute other than that, I do what the fans want. They become my new boss versus my boss boss, you know, but, uh, and I like that about the patronage system. Uh, I like, I think the fans as a whole are usually smarter and more interesting in their feedback than like a lawyer who's above you, who's telling you to cut budget for whatever reason. But that said, (laughs) the amount of work is so staggering that I wake up and have panic attacks and don't know how I'm going to do it all. And my close friends and my girlfriend will be like, well, you know, maybe think about uh, shifting directions, not meaning don't be a writer or whatever, but maybe small beans, you know, is it's almost two years old now. Maybe you metamorphose into the next thing. And I'm like, I can't just make there be a thing though. It seems like it sometimes, but it's not true. Someone has to offer me an opportunity or a job. Like I can't make, or a script I write has to get purchased. I can't just go, we're doing this now, which is a unique thing about our industry. I think, or the creative industries is just that period where something ends. Cause everything must end. Small beans will end someday. And then I go, wait, I'm basically starting over as if I just stepped out of college or like, you know what I mean? Oh, I have yeah. no job leads. I have nothing. I have no career. It starts over every time. Yeah, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a you like you're progressing. It just it feels like you're up and then you're down and then you're up and then you're down and yeah. And when people say again, well-meaning people, but when people say like, mm-hmm. have you ever thought of like doing a movie? My mom has said, "We saw this Judd Apatow movie. I just don't understand why you don't call Judd Apatow. He would love your stuff." And I'm like, "All right." Ring ring ring. Hey, Judd. How's it going? My mom says we should do a movie. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, who knows? I, 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 I feel like sometimes that, like Judd Apatow talks about, like with yeah. Gary Shandling, he called Gary Shandling up and he was like, I want to interview you. I know. And that's like when I hear, um, so are you a bit of an introvert in when you're not performing? I get that impression, but I want to ask because I don't want to assume. It's a weird thing. Sometimes I am the, well, I guess I guess that's when I'm performing. I, I'm not an introvert. Yeah. I feel awkward about asking for anything. I feel awkward reaching out to people. Right. And yeah. And you alluded sort of having difficulty really working the network, which I also have because I make friends easily, but I don't like asking them for things and I'm socially awkward, um, which the fans can't tell because I'm not real. Everything they, <laughs> everything they interact with, including this, is a bit of a performance. But uh, when you hear stories like the one that always gets me is I, Spielberg will talk about how he got his directing career by breaking into Universal Studios every afternoon and wandering onto Hitchcock sets and pretending he was a PA 
until Hitchcock would know him by face and have him run off set. And then one day he did it so many times that Hitchcock was like, I like your moxie, kid. You can carry a towel or whatever. And then he worked his way up and became Steven Spielberg. And it it's funny when you hear a story like that. I mean, it's supposed to be like inspirational, but my reaction is, Oh, so I'll never make it because I'm not a jerk. Like, or I'm a coward. I would never break through a fence. I would never call someone at their home who doesn't know me. You know what I mean? Well, you hear Um, these stories about that. I hear those stories and then you hear like horror stories like the Sean Young story. Like where she... Oh, what's that one? Oh, you haven't heard that. Which which again is frustrating to me because like all the stories that I hear, frankly, are like where like men are like you know what i just walked in there and i just did it and then you hear this story about sean young which was she wanted to be apparently she wanted to play Catwoman, and uh-huh. she like broke into again i don't know if this is a true story uh when tim burton was directing he was directing something else and else and she was dressed as Catwoman, and they were like you're crazy this woman's crazy get her out of here and then like that's <laughs> that was it and that's that wow sucks yeah. I'm like, like that would suck. Yeah, it's just it's just like a, I again I I don't know like those kind of stories can go either way. That's true. For every successful Steven Spielberg, there was a kid who Hitchcock had his goons take outside and beat the crap out of. You know, it doesn't always work out. Yeah, you hear that all the time where they're like, oh, that's how I that's how I do it. And really, it's just like there's so much luck involved. But also, I mean, if I was if I was like the, if I was like a motivation, the motivational speaker inside of me is just like, it just takes Mm -hmm. it. You just got to keep going. You got to like, when you hit that wall, you just have to just keep pushing, even though it doesn't feel like it budges. It actually, it actually is. I would, and feel free to disagree, but I feel like part of the show is comparing, uh, you know, different scars and seeing how, uh, they're different. So this might not have been your experience, but I feel like, Banging again, banging your head against the wall is I want to caution people that in my experience, there is also such a thing as not being willing to admit that luck is that chance and luck are part of it. See, because I was raised to and I'm trying to get over this, but I, I sort of view the universe as a slot machine, not even a slot machine school as a school and where I'm working, I'm working so hard and I'm trying so hard and I know inside that I'm not just working hard, but I'm nice and I care about other people and the community and I make art for the right reasons and I'm not greedy for money. And yet at some level, I am also, I am also deluding myself because I'm sitting there thinking, and therefore I earned X amount of reward and I'm just waiting for the universe to parcel that up and hand it to me. And that is not going to happen because, or it will, but whether it does or doesn't involve so much luck, and uh, I think if you if you get trapped into the delusion that the harder you work, the more success you'll have, you can do what I do, which is every time things aren't the way I want, I pull an all-nighter. I find some way to work 24 hours in a row. And that's not good either, man. It has downsides. Oh, yeah. Like, there's I don't, diminishing returns yeah. all the way. And, and absolutely, you know... Yeah, and I, I, I totally I totally understand, but um I also I, I also believe that like not, nothing will happen if you do nothing. If so you do nothing. So but was that luck piece and random chance piece 
hard for you to accept or you formulated in such a way that that wasn't a difficult hurdle for you? Because for me, a big a big difficult thing that I always reckon with is how much chance is involved. And like you said, like one of the most horrible moments in my life was I auditioning over and over as an actor and having directors once or twice pull me aside and literally say shit like, I just need you to know so that you go away with a good feeling. You were by far the the best, most talented. You shouldn't give up. But anyway, you're five inches too tall, so no. And uh, and thinking what bullshit that is, but that's not the crushing moment. The crushing moment was then casting my first thing I was directing and realizing I immediately, like, I want to cast the person who looks like I want them to look on film. I don't care how hard they're working or how much they care in their heart because I can't see those things. I just need the person who fits the role. And I was like, God damn it. So the system is not cruel because those casting directors were jerks. Life is just cold and cruel and doesn't care that your heart is big or that you care a lot. I've been on both sides of the table. I, I was I auditioned one time for a uh uh, a Canadian television show that was like it was so weird man like <laughs> I, a, I did one part once where like I played a an HIV activist um and no uh-huh. one would listen to me at this conference so I had to grab a woman and I had a needle full of blood and I had to put it to her neck and I had to scream, this has AIDS. I had to do that. I did that. That's reported. Oh and then, and then almost I, I spewed, I just like spewed some kind of information about, uh, about, about HIV. And then I was immediately right. shot in the head by a uh, security officer in Canada. And this was for the children's show street sense. I assume <laughs> that was the finale. Uh, just yeah. insane but the i did an audition just to speak to your like you know i worked so hard on this thing i did an audition and the director literally slammed the table and said we gotta cast this guy we gotta cast him and i walked out yeah and i was like fuck yeah all right my hard work paid off never heard from yeah him. never heard from anybody oh yeah i've had people go now i've had like a director stand and look at his pas and go now that's acting not for the camera that's real acting, grounded acting. Thank you, sir. And then it's like you never hear from them ever. I like another word. That was that. I don't do that on the other side. When I see something, I'm 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 friendly and supportive, but I'm not like yes, yes. That's because <laughs> even if I'm like this is perfect, because who knows what will happen? Who knows when you're right. putting together? When we were putting together the cast for Cavendish, there were so many factors that were going on. We had, we had a lot of great people and I think we chose the perfect cast. We truly did. The parents are both very funny. <laughs> Such a fan of all of the people. And I really am, but it was like really hard to, to, you know, get all those pieces in place. Um, and right. Yeah. You're like, it's so weird when you're looking, we looked at, I think I want to say like 600 people. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I watched because this is like my show. I watched every audition and I was like, because I was an actor, I tried to go to the auditions and sit and, you know, really be there because, you know, when you're an actor, you're like, right. I want the director to be there. He needs to see me. And it really doesn't matter. It doesn't when you like, right. Like, you try to do that for them, but then you realize it wouldn't have affected my decision. I was always going to pick this person. <laughs> yeah. Like the clip. And then you like, you really like, can you, you do know in the first, like, minute and i would see i would see actors uh, not even a minute i would see actors like do an audition because i would sit you know behind the count behind the uh, the table and i saw one actor he he did it and he 
and he finished it and i was like good he was like no 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 i i don't no no i fucked it up can i do it again just just one more time please 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 and i was like of course of course do it again he did it mm. exactly the same way i mean exactly right and he's like Okay. Right. All right. Good. Oh, and the, but the second time he was happy with it, he's like, "That he, was the one." Yeah, he was. He <laughs> he felt the difference, and I've been there too, where I've been like, "No, no, no." That read, I should have said, "You get out" instead of "You get out." Right. Or like the tremor in my left leg had not fully subsided by the time I started the scene. I should do it again because my shakes have calmed down. And it's like they didn't see they didn't see your foot shaking. They were looking at your face because you're acting. <laughs> so. Okay, so the broader picture I'm getting is that, and kudos to you, I think it's the right way to be, is you haven't pegged all of your identity and all of your, like, (laughs) self-worth to making it in Hollywood, per se. Like, your goals are not... You well, you you said uh, that you were uh, you weren't sure your goals were specific, or that you ever you felt like you were more going with the flow. And I find that people who have the ability to go with the flow end up less bitter and self-loathing. So I guess that's what I'm trying to reconcile is when I said, but would you describe it as a failure? You said, yes, absolutely. And laugh like, don't put quotes around it. I failed. So my question is to you, if your goals were not concrete, in what sense did you feel like you failed? You know what I mean? Is Did you just have a vague notion that you should have gotten more out of being in LA? What What made it feel... Where does the dissatisfaction come from? Well, th- there it is. Like if you if you don't have goals and you don't have you have no way to measure success or failure, can can, can you fail? Like I mean, I think exactly. I think that's <laughs> what it was. My school motto was not to try is to fail, which I always loved. It's just so harsh. Uh, that's kind of what it was. I was like, I for me it was just more like, you know, if I don't really have any kind of yeah, you know, goal here or any kind of anything, then it's fine. And I'll do. And the problem was, um, the the city is just the city is like so goal oriented, and I, you it's so it feels like it's so easy to make acquaintances, but hard to make like friends and or at least it was. Oh for yeah. Me. So because it, what the, and it's so fucked up because you'll meet people and then you'll say it's so hard to make friends it's so easy to make acquaintances and they'll be like i know what you mean and you'll have this connection but you're you never really do cuz it's it's you're still you're still acquaintances everybody's also, every- yeah everyone is so busy trying to hustle it's just a time thing like i know that everyone i know in la sees their friends so rarely even their closest friends that I think other people in other jobs would be like, you're not really friends. It's like, no, that's my closest friend. We just only see each other once a month, even though we live four miles apart because they have shows in the evening and I have a shoot in the morning and on and on and on. Um, But well, speaking of the acquaintanceship thing and the goal oriented thing, uh, like I've been to parties where a bunch of people there, nominally my friends, but obviously everyone's also there to make, business connections in the industry and my girlfriend will come with me and we've had the experience multiple times and I think people who haven't lived here might not know it's this extreme of people talking to me and go oh what do you do and I uh go you know I talk about my history of cracked or try to define what I do exactly and they get the whiff of like Oh, he's had some success with XYZ Project, or maybe I've seen After Hours. Oh, I realize who you are. And then they want to talk to me, right? 
um, I'll my girlfriend. I will go like, and this is my girlfriend, and they'll go, and what do you do? And she'll go, oh, I'm a social worker, which to me is fascinating. Like, if you meet a social worker at a party, don't you immediately have questions and think they probably have very interesting stories? But people, people will literally not say a word and just turn away from her. Like, you know, like they don't have time at this party to invest a second of conversation with someone once they realize, oh, you're not in the entertainment industry. This is over. Like they'll just turn their back on you. And uh, we've had that happen over and over. And it's just, I think, speaks to what you're saying. It made me realize this is a job interview. Like this party is a job interview. It's not a real party. (laughs) And I've been at that party a lot of times. And I, as soon as I realize I'm in a job interview or audition situation, I get like a a frightened, like an animal gets frightened. So yeah, it's a, it's a rough place to maintain friendships. I definitely feel you there, man. The Um, weather, eh? The weather. Oh, the weather's great. Is that, was it worth it? Did you really appreciate? I mean, you're in Nova Scotia, so you have a special view on weather. It's not an exaggeration. We do have four months of just like, you have to plan anytime you want to walk outside. Um, and you'll you'll have days where you're like, wow, if I didn't wear a per- certain types of clothing, I would be dead within an hour, you know. And I didn't like, and I like, if I just stayed outside within a t-shirt, I would die. <laughs> I always felt that, like with Los Angeles, it was I I really did I enjoyed that uh, I enjoyed that kind of experience. And I will also say there was also this kind of feeling of like. Well, there's nowhere else to go career-wise. Like geographically, there's nowhere else to go. This is the place where everybody goes. Um, y- you know, there's. This is where everyone wants to go. So many people in, in in the entertainment industry in Canada want to get their visa. That was a, that's a big thing right. for Canadians. It's, it costs so much oh, money. Oh my god! Yeah. It's so funny because Americans are like, "Why don't you just come down and work here?" And you're like, "You have no idea." I have friends. Yeah. Who. Because I've gotten a lot of like I've gotten a lot of work, it was fairly easy to get my O one visa. Uh, but there's people who are just you got to pay about I don't know about something like six five or six grand, and there's no guarantee that you'll even get it because you need a sponsorship, you need to prove that you're you. It's a person of exceptional ability. I have the same visa as Justin Bieber. Uh, you have to prove that you're like. <laughs> well, you're. I would say your talent levels are fairly similar. Oh, you're as funny as Justin Bieber is funny. He did funnier die a couple times. I wanted to like tell him I was from Canada, oh. but I was like, I'm not. He did a funnier die takeover one one time where he's like, Yo, oh, this is wow, Justin Bieber, okay. and this is my website now. <laughs> and I was like, All right, okay. So he's following. He's following Justin Timberlake's every career move down to the micro, like. Oh, now I'm going to get into sketch comedy. Well, bring it on into Omeletteville. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Whatever. He's fine. I really don't know uh, uh, that much about American kid shows or anything like that, really. I just... Because we had, we had a lot of great Canadian kid shows that are, were, were oh, really yeah? fucked up and weird. Oh, yeah. So great. So do we. Uh, yeah, kids shows is a great subgenre. I actually think often because it's for children when you find a kid's show that the people who crafted it were trying to do a good job they tend to have like a higher baseline quality than adult shows because 
I don't know. You don't get into children's programming usually unless you want to, like you care about that genre or whatever. So, yeah, I one of my guilty pleasures is watching shows that are far too young for like I'll I'm 34 and I'll watch an ep- sure I'll watch an episode of Arthur or uh, Between the Lions, but you guys probably didn't have those. We had our... What did you guys have? Uh, I mean, this wasn't a kid show. It was more family. Oh, we had Harriet's Magic Hats. That was one that was great. We had The Littlest Giant... Jo- or the... Oh, it's not The Littlest Giant. The um, Littlest Hobo. <laughs> just just a man of average height. The, yeah, The Littlest Giant <laughs> would just be a normal-sized man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The littlest hobo. I mean, it was just Lassie, but it was like a, it was essentially a dog that would go from town to town and save people's lives oh. and stuff. And and every time, it was heartbreaking because the kid, it would usually be a child and they'd be like, they would name him some name, like they would, yeah. they would call them, you know, Chuck or Rex or something. He's like, and Rex, are you coming home? Right. And then Rex would just stare at the child and then just run into a field and run away. And the kid would just be like, no, Rex. And you would tell oh, so it's a dog. It's a dog that saves kids, but refuses to bond with any one child. Exactly. Just jumps on a like some kind of train, and it's like they're gone. <laughs> Next kid. Next kid. Yeah. I was imagining like a tiny three-inch bindle-carrying hobo. Nope. On kids' shoulders. Being, I'll tell you what you should do with your life, kid. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, back back to crushing depression. When was the moment you knew you were coming home? Was that also around a job or was it the moment the funnier die job ended? When the funnier die job ended, was there any period of time where you were debating whether to stay or go? Or were you like, fuck this, I'm out. I'm the littlest hobo of entertainers. I'm gone. (laughs) I said to myself, I will say this. I did say to myself that I was like, I I don't want to be one of those, those, those people. And there's nothing wrong with it, but I don't want to be one of those people in a coffee shop with absolutely no job with their laptop open writing. I would go there when I had a job. Mm. I I actually mm-hmm. I I think I was sitting next to Bo Burnham when he was writing Grade Eight because he he was often there next to me writing uh, nice. like some screenplay, and I'm like, oh, I really you know, yeah. Awesome. But but I will say uh, mm-hmm. w- once the job ended, I I I had I stayed up. I couldn't sleep for about. I remember it was it was about a day and a half. Because I was like, what the hell am I going to do? I I drank a lot of five-hour energies and I wandered around Los Angeles. And I'm like, oh, this is, I don't know what to do. I I was, I sat in a coffee shop for 14 hours. <laughs> I went home. Uh, I went home for a while. And then came back. Again, still not really knowing. I uh, Oh, actually, I forgot about this. I didn't know what I was going to do. This is another thing that's like in, you know, one of those moments where like I was, I hadn't, I didn't know what I was doing and then I got an email from sort of like an agent who didn't even represent me was like hey this person needs a director do you want to direct this movie <laughs> I I know and it's one of those things where I'm like it happened I I directed uh this movie for Lionsgate uh it was like a YouTube Whoa. influencer movie I know it sounds good uh it was a fine movie. It, it was good but it was called uh Dirty 30 uh and it was all of these okay. in- it was like uh, the um I want to say like the Ocean's Eleven of like influencers in, in, in movies. It, it had of like YouTube Red. It wasn't for Victor. YouTube Red, but it was like Flula was in it. That like that uh, German uh, DJ guy. I, 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 it was uh, Flula Borg. Yeah, Grace Helbig and. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great, uh, really wonderful sure, people. 
and it was in it was an it was a great experience but um again once that was finished and that was a lot of work and a lot of my time once that was finished i think i think i had enough time like during that that experience to be like i don't and it was odd because i'm like i could use this and turn it into something probably i, I just directed a film but i was right. like i don't think i want to do this like i don't want to be here and um and i was like i i would rather you know direct a, a movie for like for like hardly any money for like 50,000 bucks or maybe yeah. nothing that's that that's sort of my own thing um then then maybe do another one of these and it wasn't necessarily because the movie was bad or anything like that it was it was a really good experience but it it got me energized and i think i really was like yeah. fuck man i can do this why don't i just write something yeah. why don't i work with people that i like i know and, and, and let's do something so that's and then i went home and i lived with my parents for a year yay <laughs> i did nothing <laughs> And then I get super depressed after that. <laughs> oh, really? I fantasize. I fantasize about giving up and moving, dude, uh, to my parents' place for a year because of the sheer like weight of like the relaxation effect. I was, I could just use a break, but is it too depressing? <laughs> I did it, and I was like, I don't know. It was, uh, it was, it was rough. My parents again, very understanding. I think, I don't know if it was burnout or if it was just like, I just, I was just in it. I, I, I spent, oh, geez, I would spend like a week just not really leaving the uh, room I was in like that. I think I'm like, and I, I'm like, yeah, this, I guess is this that, is depression. Is that, I was, so I was going to get to the question we always eventually get to, which is, hey, what's it like for you in there? So like when you're experiencing grief, depression, sadness, is that sort of how it manifests? You end up not leaving the room? It's um, it's odd. It's it's like, um, I find it's it's really like the gravity, um, like gravity changes. So everything is, it's like being on Jupiter or it's like being underwater. Uh, everything is heavy. Everything, every motion and everything, everything you do is just, just take, requires, uh, an, an intense amount of effort. Something that, that mm. you normally wouldn't even think about, uh, requires, uh, immense amount of like <laughs> mental preparation just to like do laundry or just to do anything like that. Uh, and you feel exhausted afterwards. So that's kind of where I was at, I guess, with that. And, uh, and it's odd. It was just like, I'd love to say that, um, that I just kind of like rallied and dealt with it. But um, I, I didn't like just pull myself up on my boot bootstraps again, as often uh, as, as, as often happens, like work distracted me. Something happened like, um, like when, when funny or die ended, I was like, I, I was getting down and then this movie happened and I was distracted. Um, uh, this, this for a year, I was kind of like just floating around and then, sort of Cavendish happened and I it sounds awful to say Cavendish happened I did take many active steps to make it happen um, okay I was but, gonna ask because you're starting to get me like triggered only in that I feel or like I'm no the thing that uh triggers my professional envy the most is when I hit whenever I hear someone and this is my problem not your problem but people go and then just randomly I got this opportunity because I swear to you, dude, that's never happened to me. Everything, every opportunity I've gotten, and I'm grateful for the ones I have had, and they have involved support from many people, but to get them has always been me not listening to a thousand people saying no and working all night for months and months 
to make it happen. Like I always have to do it myself. And I dream of the day when something will just happen. Like someone will call me and be like, I don't know, we're working on this. You want to join the team? That never happens to me. <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah. Cause like, that's such a shitty, like, um, just like that's I'm just, like in my head I'm like oh these this I'm just giving you the Coles notes, um, but really yeah that sounds mm. shitty to be like oh and then I, uh, the movie I'll be honest like that was out of the blue I still had to interview and show that I uh, I could do right, it right but that's still I, that to me that still doesn't count right like what counts is when and with Picnic Face we had a lot of that we definitely were kind of actively trying to do stuff and we did hit a lot of like knows well that's just not how it's done or like that kind of thing mm -hmm. um but eventually someone has to i i still i agree with you like someone has to open the door eventually um and with 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 cavendish uh, uh, like cavendish took like i pitched cavendish uh right after picnic face was canceled before i went to la so it was on and off for about six wow. years maybe more it was something then it died it was something then it died and it got to a point where we just didn't care about it we just thought we just thought well okay we'll just finish these scripts we got some money from the cbc to develop it mm -hmm. um just enough to like you know write some scripts and the last year when i was living at home um <clears throat> there was a and I was pretty bummed and I honestly thought it was just another one of those like, well, we'll just finish these scripts and whatever. But there seemed to be it seemed to be different. And and the the the, the, the um, executives there were like, you need because we didn't have a production company or anything. It was just me and Mark yeah. and another guy, Gary Campbell, who's working on it. They were like, you got to get a production company now. So I went and I on my own dime flew to Toronto and interviewed production companies and met people. And I, I cannot if I can just say now like in that process when things are done this is really where the work work is where you actually are you're met with that like when you have nothing and you have to come up with an idea where you have like you know eight different balls in the air and all of yep. them fall on the ground and you're like well i guess it's time to like go to the basket and pick up some more balls and throw them up in the air oh my gosh and it's you try to have so many Try to have so many balls in the air that they never all fall simultaneously. That's only happened to me two or three times because I usually do have multiple things in process. But yeah, there's been a few times where a year-long project falls apart the same week that a six-month-long project and a three-week-long project fall Like, they all fall apart or end on the same day, and you really are left with the... You're like someone who just fell to earth walking around with no identity, being like, who am I? What do I do? Why am I here? What do I do next? <laughs> and it's so hard to, to keep that brave face because once... Like, if you have three projects up in the air, as they say, and two of them fall apart... Mm -hmm. And then you're going to like a meeting, an important meeting for the third one. It's hard not to be like, you know, to come up with this attitude where like, well, fuck this, this is going to fall apart too. Like I, I, it's this kind of like, you know, this whole success breeds success thing is also kind of infuriating because, um, because yeah, you, that, I think there is a truth to that. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. It's a. L.A. is a giant town full of randomized failures, desperately trying to pretend that they're successful, hoping it will come true someday. You're making me want to come back. <laughs> hey, the weather is lovely. 
The water's the water's fine, my friend. You're welcome back anytime. You can live in my parents' house for a while. See if that depresses you or not. <laughs> oh, you never know. All right, I'll t- I'll hold you to that. This counts. I have- <laughs> All right. Well, I'm definitely gonna hit you guys up if I'm ever on the east coast of Canada, but that seems unlikely. Uh, a great thing was Cracked used to send us to Just for Laughs in Montreal every year, and that's where I ran into Mark a couple times, but. Uh, that is over now. <laughs> so we're gonna be Mark and I are gonna be at Just for Laughs. Nice. Oh yeah, I thought I think I heard you mention on the pod that you are. Are you featured? Featured stand up? I guess. Oh, not stand up. We're doing we're doing sketch and we're also recording. We're doing a yeah yeah a live episode. But I knew you were doing something unrelated, like a show show as well. Yeah yeah. So that'll be, that'll be fun. That's a ball, I guess. Is that a ball? Does that count? <laughs> I don't know. Is it something? I th- I always found just for laughs to be a highlight of my year. Uh, definitely, personally, I I've always loved it. I that was one of the times where I felt like I was on the right track. As I'm like, my job sends me to this place to see, you know, like I walked into a Hannibal Burris set before anyone knew, and I hadn't heard his name, and he wasn't big yet. Like I can just wander around. I saw Lauren Lapkus do stand up really early on. It's like this is just like the promised land for comedians. I must be doing something right. Here I am. I'm stuck in the elevator with Louis C.K. when it was cool for that to have been true. <laughs> oh, well, we didn't exchange a single word. I just shared a ride with him. But I'm like, this story is a story I'm going to tell a lot. And nowadays, I'm like, that's not a story I'm going to tell very often. <laughs> I went to a talk. I went to his, pro- like, he, where he talks about his process. I'm like, oh, tell me more. And, and now I'm like, nah, maybe that's probably not the best thing to uh, use this template i'm getting back into stand-up and i'm i think i'm gonna go the mitch hedberg model more than you know the single punchline pause next punchline pause i want to give that a shot sorry i didn't know i didn't know you did stand up you do i have in the past and i'm gonna i'm trying to ramp it up again yeah but i used to do over the top shit to mask how scared i was and now that i'm more comfortable on a stage because in the interim i've done a lot of rap shows which is weird but there it is um i feel like i want to get back into it and do a stand-up set that doesn't demand that i am acting my balls off the whole time you know what i mean like to hide to hide that the writing is shaky like let the writing be strong enough that i can just mitch hadberg it just go this joke now this joke that sounds fun i want to try that well i think that's that's great i i would be terrified of that uh that's great i have a couple of jokes that i like they're you know they're like premise-based jokes i mean if that makes any sense (laughs) no it does i'm sorry i just (laughs) i have mark's voice in my head going hipster joke andy's joke That's it. We got to hear your process on My Gorgeous Son. We we saw you write a joke from inception to delivery. Uh, I've never listened to the podcast, so I, I, I don't remember. Good for you. I don't. I truly don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I made this choice. As soon as we started, it was like, I'm not going to listen to it. Our, our producer, Stephen McLeod, does a fantastic job editing it. We, we record for about two hours sometimes, and he, he cuts it down to mm-hmm. 45 minutes. So, yeah, it's very tight. You both come off as like, improvisers who never fail or never have a silence and i'm like that must mean a good editor as well because that just doesn't exist with (laughs) mark man i gotta say fuck he's like his 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 improvising it's he's fucking infuriating like he's He's like an improv like and i i i I will say i got to i got to sort of see him 
uh, I, I got to see the inception sort of like he'd, he'd done things before, but like he hadn't really done sketch and he was just starting stand up. And I was more experienced as a stand up and I got to really see um, the work that he put in. And he would go to like mm. in Halifax, go to every show and be, and be writing, 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 reworking, reworking, reworking. It's just to see that process. And it's also you talk about professional jealousy, infuriating to watch a man who's really good at stand up, truly uh, and really good at improv as well. Usually it's like pick one. You get one. You can't take two. Come on. Oh, yeah. Well, Donald Glover has made everything shit for me. I'm like, well, I'm like, well, then why do any of us exist? He can just handle all of this. I know. God is supposed to divvy that stuff up amongst the people. <laughs> just give me one, please. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Salieri. Who, historically speaking, was a very gifted composer. He just wasn't as famous as Mozart. But like, as you said, it like here, I'll put it this way. If you lived in Salieri's time and you were as successful as Salieri had been, based on what you said at the top of the episode, you would have been perfectly pleased. You know what I mean? Like Salieri was still a very famous musician in his lifetime. Yeah, I know. I don't want to be I don't want to be buried in a mass grave. <laughs> so so yeah. I mean, that was like Mozart, they just chucked him in a mass grave at the end of it. They're Is like, that true? Oh yeah. yeah, it's true. He he just had he didn't really have much money and and it was just that was it. Very disobedient child, I hear Mozart was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, I I've said this to you online and to fans publicly, but but I feel like like Abe and I, who have always been a comedic sort of duo since time immemorial, almost feel like you guys are like soulmates, or you and Mark are like weird parallel Canadian versions of us, or where the wheel parallel Yankee versions of you guys. So, uh. So this was delightful. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. But uh, I have to go record other podcasts, so I'm not going to. But I'd love to have you back sometime if you're game. I mean, we haven't covered Hearthstone on our video games podcast. We could do that. Oh, well, anytime. <laughs> I, that's one thing I will say I know way too much about the history of video games and video games and all that stuff. That's kind of my, my go-to. Okay, well, we have a show, One Upsmanship, that you should definitely guest on. Uh, we'll work it out on the on the internet. And uh, and honestly, um, if I could just say, uh, I feel like you yeah. are the American version of us. So uh, great, <laughs> it's delightful to hear. Uh, and well, then I'll treat you as I would have you treat me, and ask you to please plug things so that people can find them, and your career can blossom into the beautiful flower it deserves to be. Each pedal a, a twenty million dollar franchise. <laughs> oh, oh, me plug things. I thought you meant like, yeah, I'll tweet yeah, this exactly. out. Sure. What, what do you, what do you need? <laughs> I'll do it the way you're most comfortable with. Uh, are there any local uh, uh, Toronto comedians you might be interested in following? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what's um. I think Mark Little is pretty good. I'm going to do this for you. Picnic Face Sketch is widely available online. Most of your stuff is hard to find online if you're not in Canada. But if you are in Canada, uh, check out Andy's stuff through various CBC apps. Cavendish is his most recent triumph, stars and directs episodes. And uh, otherwise, you can find him at a Tim Hortons sitting for 14 hours trying to figure out what he's going to do next staring off into the middle distance oh and you can follow me at at andy c bush i i, I want i want more followers on twitter that's because there you go there you go i worked in a tim hortons reference by the end so all is well <laughs> yeah all right dude well thank you for braving the pit 
And uh, till next time. Thank you. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.